Welcome to the You and I podcast, a series where we share firsthand the experience of patients with overactive bladder, commonly known as OAB. This podcast is a series kindly supported by Astellas, and we're grateful to them for their generosity. In the series, we'll speak to a number of patients and to a patient organisation about various aspects of living with OAB. We will uncover what it was like to be diagnosed with OAB, how OAB impacted patients during the COVID-19 pandemic, and much, much more. We're hoping that this series will be informative to patients and the public alike and raise awareness about a condition that is steadily affecting more and more people. My name is Professor Marcus Drake, and I'm delighted to be talking to these brave patients willing to discuss their condition so that others can better understand OAB. I'm delighted to be joined by Janet to share a patient's perspective of what it's like to be diagnosed with OAB. Janet lives in Bristol and was diagnosed with OAB many years ago. In many ways, Janet's story is similar to many other patients, but each patient's story is unique. And Janet's story is no exception. Everyone responds differently to the early stages of OAB before being diagnosed. And I'm really grateful to Janet for joining me today to share her story. So welcome to the podcast, Janet. Thank you. So to begin with, I wonder whether you might like to introduce yourself to our listeners. My name is Janet and I'm privileged to discuss my OAB with you today. I have a long history of bladder problems which I had become intolerable to cope with in my everyday life. And it can be really intrusive, can't it? And I think one of the things about diagnosing OAB is it's such a varied progress depending on your personal and the medical circumstance and it's a really significant moment in a patient's life and and so would you mind would you describe the early onset of the symptoms was it unexpected was it severe did it st- come on gradually what sort of happened well i think it was more that i had to pay frequent visits to the uh, toilet and you know i couldn't hold the meal my water and if i was not near a toilet it was very very difficult um, and if I was out travelling, you can imagine it was even more difficult because you, you you just haven't got the facilities unless you go behind a hedge. And behind the hedge is never a great experience for anyone, and particularly not a woman. It is if you've got leaves. Oh, the leaves! The leaves are good, are they? <laughs> right. Okay. Is that is that really to to screen off being seen? That's to screen off everything. Yeah. Yeah, of course it is. And then what about during travelling? Because not everywhere has a hedge. Well, I just have to wear very heavy hammock-like pads um, that I have to change fairly regularly. And as I've said, you know, I have to stop when I can um, and go to the toilet. And this sort of reliance on the pads, was that a early requirement, you know, at at the start of the situation? Well, it became more difficult as the years went on and um, I was lucky enough to get some National Health um, sanitary pads, uh, which I still use from time to time, just as a precautionary measure. Yeah, understood. And then, uh, you know, I, I, I guess, was there a point where it just became so intrusive that you headed off to, to see somebody about it? 
Yes, that's right. It just, you know, you could be sitting in a car in your home and it would just come, water would come away and I just thought I must do something about this and I need to see a doctor, so I went to my local GP. And as we just cover a little bit about the early years, when this really first started, what, how would you describe the impact on your, on your everyday life? Well, like I said, you know, my job as well was uh, travelling. Uh, so I had to go to um, colleges and um, local companies um, to monitor young, people, young people's training. Uh, and so, again, I needed to be fairly close. It became a bit difficult when you're sort of doing a bit of a talk with your young people. Um, but I managed. So what would actually happen during the talk then? Well, I just have to whip myself. Did you, did you carry on as if nothing had happened or did you head it off? And... No, I just excused myself politely and found a toilet. Did you feel that you managed to sort of get away with it and you know, managed to disguise things or how, how did you, what what basically did you feel at that moment? Well, I did manage to disguise it. I mean, there were occasions when, you know, I couldn't because it came through my trousers or dress or whatever. But in the main, I managed. How about during social situations? Was that easier, more difficult? Again, it's exactly the same happened, you know. If I went anywhere, I had to make sure that I wasn't in some godforsaken place that I could uh, be close to a toilet. And people that I knew, my friends, relatives, they, they all understood the problem and they, you know, they accepted that I might have to rush off somewhere. Well, I've got very good friends. Um, they were perfectly okay. And, I mean, if I had a problem, if I felt there was going to be a problem... I would just simply put a polythene bag or something into the chair or into the car I was uh, travelling in and, you know, make sure that I didn't leave any any sort of remains, as it were. Sure, absolutely. So, I mean, that sometimes people find that there's there are certain circumstances that can really be problematic. I mean, you've mentioned, obviously, giving a talk and I suppose a little bit of... Um, Maybe it was stressful or maybe it was used to, but some sort of stress is, a, is involved in doing a talk. Was there anything else that perhaps brought on the, the problem in particular? Well, uh, you know, I'm married and in my personal life it was difficult with the relationship, particularly in uh, close relationships of sexual kind. Uh, because obviously uh, during that time, um, very often it would just re- the urine would just release, and you know I was left with a wet bed, or you know. But so I used to use a pad, and, and also not a pad urine, you might say. But I always had a, something in the bed, a rubber sheet or something in the bed wherever possible, and I used to take things like that when I went on holiday. Sure, lots of planning ahead needed. And then you, I think, went to see your doctor really quite a long time ago and, and they and they sent you off to a urologist. Did the, did, the, did the family doctor sort of understand the situation? Had they got much background in looking after this sort of problem? Well, I think being a general practitioner, um, 
they tend to sort of refer you fairly quickly to the relevant consultant, whoever they may be. Um, and that was about it. We discussed it and I was referred and I saw the, the consultant and everything went on from there. So this was something like 20 years ago, wasn't it? Yes, it was. So I, I'm, I'm sort of hopeful that things might have changed a bit now and that the GP would, would, would have a, a better idea of, of getting things started in the, in the practice. So I'd be hopeful that, you know, anybody that's following on in a similar situation to yours might get a little bit of input from the GP. Um, and I'd be quite interested to know, actually, did anybody at any point suggest to you what how to adapt things at the more simple level, like what sort of... Uh, drinks to drink or anything like that well i think you've always got to watch your diet i mean if you if you um drink too much you're always suspect to uh you know go into the toilet so you know you do have to watch um or limit sometimes when you're out because of that reason but this was something that you worked out rather than getting any sort of um scrutiny of what was going on and some advice from a, a professional is that right I think I sort of made a lot of my own decisions based on the fact that what was happening to me personally and I thought, well, I must cut down on things. And um, so, as I said, I sort of tried to limit the activity. Fair enough. So you you basically used your own common sense to, to make some adaptations and and generally you proceeded with your own ideas. That is correct. Also pelvic exercises as well, which, you know, I've done so many exercises and played sport all my life, but that didn't work either. Okay, so with the pelvic floor exercises, did they um, give you a leaflet or simply describe it or did you see a professional to teach you about the exercises? You know, I didn't see a professional, um, but uh, I, was, I was given the leaflet at the time and I just sort of tried to go through through the leaflet in the best way I could, um, but it didn't didn't really work out for me. Were you confident in doing the exercises, though? Well, I could have done with some help, I think. I think, yeah, I, I'm, uh, we, we've sort of identified that actually if you ask a woman to do the pelvic floor exercises without any sort of thing to say you're doing them appropriately or correctly or this could be changed and you might do better they're not too confident and then if you're not confident you're not sure it's doing being done right and you stop doing it that's absolutely right just thinking back again when you finally got told that you've got oab was this a surprise how did you feel when you were diagnosed with oab well i think going back to you know, I think it's, I think it was so I was associated with having children. I mean, I would never had children. Uh, I, you know, it was a bit of a surprise to think that I was going to have such a weak bladder. So this was a bit of a shock. But um, did they did they sort of explain how it comes about, or how did they share the information with you? Well. I think over the years they describe it as a degenerate condition. Yeah, it is something that can be a little bit more common with people as they get. But I have had it for a long time, a long, long time. Yeah, absolutely. So how old were you when it was first an issue for you? Uh, 
I was in my 50s. Yeah, it's not uncommon, actually, for people to start to get symptoms affecting their waterworks at that sort of age. But it does sound like it was a pretty big hit. It hit you pretty severely. It was. And then um, at that sort of earlier stage, is there anything that you might advise to somebody that might perhaps be developing similar symptoms round about now? Well, I would just say to keep a close watch on, on you know, their, the amount of times, for example, they have to go to the toilet, whether in fact they can hold their water when they go or, you know, or whether it just releases itself. I think they've just got to um, keep keep account of, you know, that, that those symptoms. So you're really sort of tracking the problem a bit there. And then uh, what would you say about heading off to the doctor? Do you think that's a good idea? What sort of thing would you suggest? Definitely a good idea. How quickly would you suggest? Well, it's a difficult question because I think everybody's different. Um, and some people cope with things a lot easier than others. And some people get panicky and think, oh, I must rush to the doctor. Other people will not go at all and they wait until the bitter end until they have to. Indeed. Do you think embarrassment might be stopping some people? Could be, but I, I didn't ever see it as embarrassment uh, um, as such because I always wore the necessary protection. So you, dis- you, you would really sort of advise people that embarrassment's not particularly necessary or you, it can be dealt with? Yeah, I can think of a lot more things that are uh, embarrassing. So how do you feel about the future? Well, as my uh, urine my, is, is stabilised, I, I feel quite confident, even though I'm getting older. I'm very glad to hear. So I think it's been fantastic talking to you, Janet. Is there anything else you'd, you'd like to just mention to the listeners before we say cheerio? Well, I would just say that um, anyone who feels that they've got a problem with their urine, so initially go to the doctor you know don't don't hold back just go to the doctor and discuss it with him or her and um, try and get a diagnosis and if, if necessary the doctor will refer to a consultant and you know that means that um, hopefully she'll go on the same journey as me and um, put get it sorted out Well, thank you very much indeed, Janet. It's been fantastic talking to you. Yeah, has you too. So thank you very much for listening to this episode of the You and I podcast. And my particular thanks to Janet, who was so kindly able to share with us the patient's perspective of what it's like to be diagnosed with OAB and to follow this journey of going through the coping mechanisms and the treatments and her strong message to stick with it keep going and do seek health care advice. So whether you're a doctor, a patient or somebody who's keen to learn more about OAB, I hope you found this episode informative. Please tune in next time where we'll explore more about living with OAB. And please subscribe to this podcast to be notified about new episodes.